You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Um, good evening and welcome. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. My name is Max Delaney and I'm delighted to welcome you this evening for the fifth lecture in our 2019-2020 lecture series, Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, 1968 to 1999. The Defining Moments series encompasses 16 lectures over two years that take a deeper look at critical moments that have shaped Australian art since 1968. The series explores selected game changes in Australian art, addressing key contemporary art exhibitions and projects staged over the last three decades of the 20th century, and reflects on the ways these exhibitions have shaped art history and contemporary Australian culture more broadly. To begin with, I would like to sincerely acknowledge the Bunwurrung, traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and we extend our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. The Defining Moments Australian Exhibition Histories lecture series wouldn't be possible without the support of a number of partners. We'd like to extend our heartfelt thanks to presenting partner Abercrombie and Kent, who have been generous long-time supporters of ACCA and our lecture series. We're also pleased to welcome COVA, the Centre of Visual Art at the University of Melbourne, who are supporting the series as a research partner. We're also very grateful to our media partners, Art Guide Australia, the Saturday Paper and Triple R, and our event partners, the City of Melbourne, CAPI, and of course, the Melbourne Gin Company, who prepared this evening's cocktail. Tonight, we're very excited to present the fifth lecture in the Defining Moments series, focusing on the Clifton Hill Community Music Centre, but with David Chesworth, uh, presenting the lecture and Kelly Flyder as respondent, which I'm very much looking forward to. The Clifton Hill Community Music Centre was active from 1976 to 1984. It involved artists from two distinct generations who created new work, performed, debated, collaborated and occasionally shirt-fronted each other, I'm told. It was one of the critical places in Australia where the boundaries of performance, music making, filmmaking and installation were dissolved. Musicians made films, visual artists made music, critics and theorists performed. We're delighted to welcome David Chesworth to present this evening's lecture. David is an artist, musician and composer. For five years, from 1978, he was coordinator of the Clifton Hill Community Music Centre and early in his career, he was co-founder of post-punk band Essendon Airport. He's known for his experimental and minimalist music and has worked with, ele with electronics, contemporary ensembles, film, theatre and experimental opera. Together with Sonia Lieber, he creates films and installations that are speculative and archaeological, responding to architectural, social and technological settings. Their works have been presented and collected by institutions nationally and internationally, including the 56th Biennale of Venice, All the World's Futures in 2015, with the dear departed Okwi in Weasor, and more recently, their work was the subject of a mid-career survey exhibition at the CCP titled Architecture Makes Us. We're also delighted to welcome Kelly Flydner back to Melbourne, who is now a Perth-based writer and curator. Kelly writes fiction and art criticism and is currently a PhD candidate at the University of Western Australia, where she's writing on contemporary art practices from South Asia. Kelly completed a research master's at the University of Melbourne, considering experimental performance, sound, music, and interdisciplinary practices through the work of artists who were associated with the Clifton Hill Community Music Centre in Melbourne during the late 1970s and the 80s. 
So she's very well placed to offer an informed and engaged response to David's lecture this evening. David will be speaking for approximately 40 minutes, followed by a response uh, from Kelly. There will then be some time for discussion between David and Kelly, after which we'll have time for some questions from the audience. And my colleague, Adrian Haywood, ACUS Curator of Public Programs, will be on hand with a microphone to welcome questions. But for now, please join me in welcoming our speaker for this evening, David Chesworth. Thank you, Max. Uh, it's very nice to be invited uh, to uh, make some comments on Clifton Hill Community Music Centre. I've just uh, got to do a little rejig here. pre-show entertainment, which was uh, music from the Clifton Hill Community Music Centre. So if you got there here early, you would have been hearing that, because there's not a lot of time for me to play music in this talk. Okay. Once upon a time, in the Christmas break of 1977, my composition lecturer, Warren Burt, rang me out of the blue and asked if I would take on the role of coordinator of the Clifton Hill Community Music Centre. I was then a young 19-year-old and pretty naive, but already influenced by the radical new music course set up by Keith Humble at La Trobe University. Under Keith and teachers like Warren, I had been introduced to experimental music uh, experimental music making and the notion that anyone could acquire skills to make their own kind of music. Music study was no longer just for the elites. So it's a kind of an, quite an important uh, um, course and institution. I was intuitively, intuitively musical but had never learnt to play an instrument. Um, and so the La Trobe course opened up a new exciting world of possibilities for me. So I was co coordinator between 1978 and sometime in 1983, but I don't kind of quite know when that ceased. <laughs> 40 years ago, whoa. Um, the acronym uh, CHCMC, which Clifton Hill gets uh, reduced to, is a bit of a mouthful. In fact, it's unpronounceable, which is a kind of cute thing about it. Um, but um, I'd just like to pick apart and look at what those words might imply. And just to be kind of awkward, I'm going to go back to front. So the uh, community, Clifton Hill Community Centre, music community, Hill Clifton. So if we go centre, if we talk about centre, for a start, the place never really functioned as a centre. It was never referred to as a centre. Calling it a centre makes a place sound very official and controlling, and perhaps that was the intention of uh, the people that set it up, to give some kind of you know, faux status to the, the project. In actuality, the venue exercised very little structure or focus, or maybe a lot of structure in a different kind of way. It was the opposite of a centre, as it provided spaces for outsiders marginal artists and composers. So I pick on Warren straight away. Um, Clifton Hill was set up by composers Warren Burt and Ron Nagorka in 1975. And this is a picture of Warren um, in 1976, actually. Uh, this is a picture of Warren from that time. Um, 
the place had a precedent in similar, uh, a similar center, similar place or center called the Atomic Cafe in uh, UC San Diego, the University of California, San Diego, where Ron had first met Warren as a fellow student. Uh, so Warren is an, was an American and Ron uh, went there to study. He's an, uh, from Australia. Australian composer Keith Humble, who was a generation older than Warren and Ron, who were a generation older than me, was also teaching at UC, uh, UC San Diego, having originally taught in the Electronic Music Center at Melbourne Uni. Keith had also set up and run an experimental community music venue with composer Jean-Charles Francois while teaching in Paris. It's important that I kind of just go through this and then we'll get, get to like slightly more interesting for some of you, perhaps, in a sec. Um, in 1975, Keith was invited to set up the music course at the Trobe and invited Warren to join him in Australia. Ron also came back at the same time to teach composition at Melbourne State College, which was then a wing of Melbourne University. There's Ron. On the trip back, Ron and Warren discussed setting up a similar place to the Atomic Cafe in Melbourne, and Ron suggested implementing a basic structure that didn't rely on income. I think he'd been burnt by uh, a, a, an organization that happened in Melbourne, which I won't go into prior to this, where there was a grant and it got kind of messed up with um, uh, infighting and all kinds of things. So he didn't want this center to rely on, on, on money it would be free for audiences to attend and performers would not be paid. Thus, there would be no financial contract that implied artists needed to produce worthy works for the audience. Ron wanted a place that was just for research, for trying things out. And he says, not for career builders or critics. We know about career builders, but critics have basically, except for a few notable exceptions, have disappeared off the planet. Not everyone. Um, he and Warren wanted Clifton Hill to be run anarchically and yet to be community-oriented, if they can be resolved, those two things, but that's what they wanted, to encourage as wide a community as possible. So Warren and Ron with Keith Humble brought to Australia new attitudes to um, music creation that were germinating in progressive centres overseas and which lay outside of the academic grip of most European modernism at that time. So that's the Clifton Hill Community Music Centre. So now we'll do the music part of the title. Music had relevance to only some of the works that were presented, because there was also film, video, text-based works, a kind of performance practice. Today, I might almost, but not quite, use the term sound art to describe some of the works that were presented. But that label and that orientation of thinking about sound was still several years away from emerging. Many Clifton Hill performers had very little previous experience in music making, including myself, and many of us indulged um, in all kinds kind of uh, cross-art form activities anyway, not just making music. We operated as, as um, cultural dilettantes, as film critic Adrian Martin puts it. Adrian also presented work at Clifton Hill with his group, The Connotations. 
From today's perspective, I would describe Clifton Hill as being focused not so much on making music, but rather on exploring the creation and consumption of time-based works. Works developed not through any um, um, reversion to musical virtuosity, but rather from the application of concepts, internal compositional structures, and in some cases, the reframing of existing and understood musical forms. So structure, rather than individual free expression, was the game at Clifton Hill at that time. Expressive musical posturing was rife everywhere else on the planet and in Melbourne, from uh, the punk new wave scene with Nick Cave, uh, to jazz performances with groups like Crossfire, to contemporary classical music performance with Fladerman, all postures. So Clifton Hill Community Music Centre. Community, that word community. Warren and uh, Ron were wanting the new space to be accessible by everyone. In contrast to the experience at universities and arts institutions where experts so-called ruled. Not to mention the mainstream commercial music industry where businessmen mainly pervaded and controlled music at that time. The idea of community, though, was troubling for us younger, bratty upstarts back then. Not so much for me now, um, but back then it suggested to us the imposition of some kind of unfiltered program in which creative risk took a back seat to group conciliation and the reiteration of safe traditional art forms. It was also just a bit hippie sounding to have that in the title. It actually got dropped from the title, um, notoriously, um, for um, one uh, poster and in the a Vogue magazine article that actually came out. And there was an uproar about the fact the community, community got dropped. We thought it would, it would kind of give it a bit more hip, uh, relevant kind of uh, uh, title. But uh, it went back in because uh, it was just too much uh, sort of aggravation that was kind of uh, kick-started by that. Um, so when uh, talking retrospectively about the Clifton Hill Community Music Centre, I and others usually refer to the scene at Clifton Hill, and I think this term, scene, is a better description, as it was literally a scene. Once the multicultural and community aspirations failed to materialise, for reasons I won't go into right now, the remaining performers and audiences, it seems, shared similar desires to explore creative outcomes at Clifton Hill. And so I suppose it did really become a community after all, one that supported each other's efforts non-critically. Clifton Hill, <coughs> Community Music Centre, Clifton Hill. Why there? Ron and Warren's first try was at La Mama. They did a little uh, series at La Mama in Carlton. Um, and then as it happened, a performance, uh, an opportunity for a performance space arose in the, arose in the organ factory, which our friend, uh, a friend of theirs and mine, John Campbell, found out about, um, in a building owned by the education department, which is now part of Gold Street Primary School. Uh, the old organ factory, which you can see here, was originally a boot factory. Um, and more interestingly, it became um, an organ factory, and it's the factory where the organ in the Melbourne Town Hall was assembled. 
that massive thing was put together there, which interestingly now is quite accessible to all kinds of people. Um, there's a program where you can basically put a case for making a work on the organ. Anybody can. So it's kind of cute that that happened. Um, so Clifton Hill opened uh, for um, non-business but uh, activities in um, 1976. So how did the centre operate? Just quickly, there were um, upstairs, there were two rooms, um, tiny rooms. This is one of them you can see there. There's a tisk 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 performance happening with the uh, audience on the left. There's actually Philip Brophy on the, on the right. You can just see his head. Um, I just quickly took a few photos. This is there's very little photographs of Clifton Hill Community Music Centre. I think some people did take them, but they haven't kind of come into me at all from um, outside yet. It was seen as a no-no to take photos in a way, or it was really frowned upon because you had tickets on yourselves if you felt that you were good enough to you know, take photos of your own performance. Because everything was sort of happening in the now. It was like an immediate thing. It wasn't about building careers at that time. It was kind of just about doing things in that moment. It wasn't about a plan and a strategy. You know, things change from um, uh, week to week. Therefore, there's uh, not a lot of documentation. So the two rooms upstairs, there's this, the one that you can see there, and um, another room um, where, which had a, a small theatre in it run by a new theatre. And um, you can see there, that's actually me playing a, a layer on layer concert. Um, looking uh, a bit craftworky there, but uh, there you go. Um, and so we got access uh, to that space, um, which we used more and more as the audiences kind of uh, grew. The equipment was pretty crummy. There was, um, we, were, we were actually given some equipment because the Australia Council kind of supported, not us directly, but the centre, and we were given a whole lot of junk and it was just complete garbage out of a recording studio, and we couldn't use any of it except two huge speakers. And you can see the big speakers there, actually. There that big speaker cone. And they're the only things, just one big speaker. There's no Twitter in it. I mean, they're great things now if you're doing a performance at Acker or something. But back then, they, you know, this was the late 70s. They, they still they had, they hadn't yet had that distance and ironic kind of cuteness. You know, they were still the shit that we had to deal with back then. Yeah, so there was very little equipment, and so we had to bring our own stuff in, and I was coordinator. I'd have to organise some of that stuff. And uni de university departments were really good at lending things back then before they became these, you know, fortresses and impenetrable and hating of students. But back then they were kind of, you know, really nice places. Um, so my job as coordinator was to put together the programmes and make sure that everything ran smoothly, fine equipment... Um, and there were other coordinators before me. There was Warren and Ron, and um, Andrew Preston and Robert Goodge did it for a half a year or so each after me. Performances were every, uh, every Wednesdays, sometimes on Mondays. We got two, two lots a week, sometimes one thing an evening, sometimes four. Philip Brophy designed the posters, so we had some fabulous kind of poster design. Um, which were super inventive. And um, Rhonda Gorka would uh, photocopy these, uh, um, do massive photocopies of them at uh, Melbourne State College, where he was. 
uh, Ernie Eltoff, uh, who's another performer there, and who developed his own performance kind of practice at Clifton Hill, took it upon himself to record all the performances and, on cassette using dummy head mic, which I'm still to kind of go through and ha have a look at. The performers weren't paid, as I said, which is very unusual back then. Unfortunately, it's more the norm now, but back then that was a, a kind of a bit of a break. An audience didn't pay, and as I said, no critics uh, were invited. And interestingly, uh, a small detail, but I'd just like to mention that no one really applauded um, <laughs> in between performances. Um, we just kind of, you know, thought, hmm, yeah, we kind of nodded and did various things. Um, <laughs> um, it was kind of... Uh, that, that little factoid got sort of uh, highlighted often by the press who used it as ammunition to criticise this mysterious kind of venue that they'd never been to, imagining that it was super academic and uptight, you know, no one even applauded. Um, Adrian Martin remembers it as a very friendly place where the audiences gathered around tea and coffee urn uh, to discuss uh, the performances. So between performances, yeah, everyone just gathered and chatted. It was like fantastic. He says, for, Adrian says, for shy and often isolated young and old uh, proto-creatives such as himself, this became a very supportive, up place, upbeat place to be at. Ernie Altoff mentioned often hanging around well into the night in conversation about what he'd just heard or seen. So what uh, kinds of performances took place? Um, Clifton Hill quickly settled, settled into presenting a broad spectrum. I don't know why I wrote that. Broad spectrum. <laughs> a shitload, perhaps, I don't know, of um, experimental uh, music. A, a big, uh, yeah, a, a, quite a lot of kind of variation. And um, what is experimental music, um, you might ask? Because back then it wasn't a genre. I mean, now we know it as, you know, we call anything vaguely abstract and kind of unfathomable as experimental. But back then, um, it really meant a music or any kind of performance, perhaps, that tried out new ideas and structures that might ultimately fail. So it was experimenting to see if the piece would actually work. And uh, so a place, anyway, uh, I'll get to this, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Um, so. Audiences began to build very slowly, and uh, from audiences of four or five, sometimes one, I remember, yes, that was me, um, um, it moved up to, you know, the teens, into the 20s, sometimes we would get, and later it grew, you know, it became capacity, so 80 to 100 people at some sessions. And some of us started um, presenting our work in other venues. As Adrian puts, puts it, puts it, puts it, um, we all premiered or, he says, we all premiered or workshopped our new stuff there first before venturing out, if invitations existed, to rock clubs on the one hand or art events on the other, where the audience were far colder and sometimes even pretty hostile. And this is a big part of my warm, fuzzy memory of the time. The Clifton Hill Community Music Centre really was a safe place, as he calls it, where one could try out or present anything in a first draft form. That was precious." End quote. And those kind of venues included the Crystal, Crystal Ballroom in St Kilda, the Ewing Gallery, uh, Melbourne University, run by curator Judy and Nia. 
Some of us presented works in, um, at one stage in Paul Taylor's Popism show at the NGV. And also some of us went to the 1983 Paris Autumn Festival to do um, where they came to select some Australian music and somehow bur Josephine Markovitz burrowed down and found the Clifton Hill Community Music Centre and took us out rather than the, um, I don't know, the, uh, um, some other, I'll just, I'll just make some bad comment about who they could have taken, but... Um, <laughs> um, Paul Taylor had become a regular at Clifton Hill, and he actually even performed there um, himself one time. And uh, he, he was a very interesting curator, for those who don't know, who um, uh, um, put out a, a book called Art, a book, a series of publications, a magazine called Art and Text. Um, so, look, an in-depth in description of the kinds of works presented needs its own lecture series. So just to be brief, there were, there, presented there were fully notated pieces, electronic pieces, pieces that investigated cultural norms and twisted them to reveal new perspectives, minimalist works, popular music structures revisited ironically. That's Adrian and the connotations again. Um, there was improvisations, even though I don't like to admit to it, but there was. Uh, Laughing Hands, Rosbant, um, Live, uh, Lime, Live, Improvise music ensemble. Improvisation, there you go. Um, and David Tolley. Um, experimental process pieces, which the process of carrying out actions and structures revealed the work in the surfaces of the music, revealed that the, the, the structure would be revealed if you carried out various processes. I'll get back to that. Uh, performance pieces, including. Um, uh, myself and others, um, Herb Yerker famously with whips and actually pulled out a gun and started shooting it at a birdcage at one point. Um, conceptual pieces by people like Rainer Lintz and cassette and toy instrument pieces by Graham Davis, Ernie and Rhonda Gorka. That's uh, Ernie there with a, a doing a cassette work. And this is a shot of Ron, not at Clifton Hill. It's something, um, I need to clarify where that happened, but... Um, he used to play cassette works that would build up a structure by recording from one cassette onto another and then playing that back whilst recording back on another cassette. And he'd do this perhaps with having four or so cassette players at the same time. In fact, um, sorry about the samples only uh, image there, but this is Ron's um, score for a very, uh, a piece that's really quite significant from that time called Atom Bomb. It, was a, it took a, an hour or so to perform. He did, then he did, you know, Son of Atom Bomb and Atom Bomb Meets Godzilla or something <laughs> later. Um, but it was scored for toy instruments and um, built up on um, cassette players following a series of very precise instructions with certain freedoms added in. Um, but basically you had to follow, um, follow these in instructions. And with any luck you might the choice is between slavery and faith, and I 
nice decay in here at least, not too brutal. Um, yeah, amazing work, an hour in length that you, you know, you sort of draws you in and uh, builds from hardly anything being audible to, to quite a, um, uh, a large um, ensemble work as it ends up with four tape recorders in the corner of the room with, all, with voices that have been spoken in whilst uh, one cassette player is recording another. And uh, this piece just grows and grows and also has the qualities of the room and the technologies imbued within uh, the sounds as well. So there's a kind of a, a transition and a development that takes place there. So interesting um, work. Um, cassettes and toy instruments were cheap, so they were often used quite a bit. And rock instruments were also cheap and available, and that's why kind of they were used to some degree. Um, we usually had really crappy rock instruments, but nonetheless, there was more of those than, than you know, fancy things like um, violins and cellos and that, though some performers did play those uh, instruments. So there's also um, film, uh, John Dunkley Smith, Adrian Martin, Philip Brophy, video works, the Randellis, text-based work, uh, Chris Mann, Pio, um, in some installation work, Ros Band, for example, did that. Um, Performers might uh, completely change their creative outputs, exploring new mediums from uh, performance to performance. Composers, as, as um, Max said in his introduction, became filmmakers, visual artists became musicians. It was one of the few places where a cross-art form practice was allowed to germinate and develop. Um, I shouldn't digress too much, but there were a lot of long pieces, a lot of long duration works. Um, and it's quite fascinating. Like, you would sit through an hour piece quite easily, um, or, or um, you know, 20 minutes. It was, you know, if, if a piece was 10, mi 10 minutes, it was like, whoa, that's kind of good. That was quick. That was kind of um, But it's very, but we kind of got into it, and we, it, it, was, it was interesting spending time pushing through works that were often very boring, and then finding things that were interesting uh, along the way. I was just a bit thrown when both Warren, talking to Warren and Ron now, kind of a, a bit down on the long works that they used to perform. And, and in fact, Ron said, worse to the effect that if he encountered works like that today, he would walk out, he just wouldn't give a, a second. And so I'm gonna have to try and um, unpack that a bit with uh, my kind of reverence to those kind of long works. Um, so there are other outcomes at Clifton Hill, just briefly. There were two newspapers that were put out. There were three or four issues of the New Music newspaper that happened before my time, put out by Warren and uh, um, Les Gilbert, and which had news all around about what was happening everywhere and, and articles. And um, New Music, uh, which I put out with Philip Brophy, and it was pretty much a Philip Brophy idea that um, th this work, this was about a review, each concert was reviewed and uh, written up, and then the people who presented the concert would, have, would read that, and then an interview would ensue where the issues were discussed and the whole review and the performance, and that was also recorded and written up as well. Very kind of convoluted and very difficult, because back then there were no computers, it was all typewriters and typists, and it was like inc incredibly uh, onerous to do it. But a very interesting document, and there were four issues of that. Um, they're in the live, um, Melbourne 
um, State Library. I know I've got copies and uh, various other people. There were um, music putouts by um, a, a label, Innocent Records, which released uh, some of the rock bands there, Tistatisk and others. Um, and released two albums of uh, new music, which you were listening to when you came in and might play after as well. So they, they, they happened. Um, there were articles in Rock Press. There we are, home of Melbourne's new music, Clifton Hill Music Centre, and often told off by the Rock Press quite a bit, actually. So uh, that kind of was a constant encounter we were told to, like, you know, go take a walk, basically. Um, anyway, at Clifton Hill, generational creative differences were exposed. And I think this was the most significant thing um, in that it helped help to develop works that marked out this difference. Now, by generational, um, I have to... Uh, throw that in. I have to say that the older generation, we're talking like 30 years old, and the younger generation, us, were 20. I was 19 when I started doing it. So that was the generation gap there, and they were already kind of like someone else uh, to us. Um, so we need to look at these differences, both in attitudes and confusions uh, in some of the audiences to the works, about the a work's purpose, through the prism of punk, the arrival of French theory and continental cinema that the younger generation got into and which rubbed up against an American modernism, perhaps from um, Warren, Ron and others, Keith Humble, whatever, um, an American modernism that was infused with a kind of hippie anarchism. Both were positions that challenged modernism's status quo but with very different approaches and artwork outcomes. At that time, our artwork making was not... Um, okay, pause. At that time, just to, our artwork making was not heavily influenced by um, the larger sonic or visual art discourses that are now familiar to many art and music students. The internet, of course, didn't exist. Um, the discipline of sound studies was yet to emerge, and it was difficult and slow to access information and to see and hear, and more importantly, to discuss and debate the legacies of older artists, like, say, Alvin Lussier or Pierre Schaeffer. You know, you'd heard about them in 10 minutes, for 10 minutes in a lecture, but that was it. You moved on. This had good and bad consequences for us. Uh, we missed obvious and important precursors to our own work. However, we also developed our own personal voices that didn't end up mimicking or deferring to what others were already thinking and doing. We weren't used to seeing it back then um, and hearing live performance of experimental music either. It didn't happen anywhere else particularly. Ernie Althoff says of this, yes, I had Fred Frith LPs in my collection, but seeing a prepared guitar being played in the same room by Robert Goodge, Ditto Warren and the uh, Modular Surge synthesizer, Ron's didgeridoo, David's long tape loops, laughing hands gear, and the list goes on. Consider how important this was to a then non-musician like me at the time." End quote. However, I think at Clifton Hill, some of us were in the process of shaking off the influence of modernism that seemed to me to always be pushing forward. I remember thinking this. 
rejecting the structures of the past and searching for the new. This had become exhausting and futile. I remember the class getting, I just remember it distinctly. I remember thinking, yeah, yeah. Instead, we were, we younger generations started to revisit the past, not through building on what earlier artists had done, but rather through pulling what they had done apart or finding stuff to pull apart, deconstructing popular and elitist art forms and music that was all, uh, the kind of music that was all pervasive around us. Popular culture back then as, as a thing to be critiqued was only just getting a foothold. It, you know, people just didn't consider it an area of investigation. They were just starting to then. Hard to imagine that. Um, similar deconstructions were taking place, of course, in um, elsewhere, in punk music in particular at the time, which was very influential to some people at Clifton Hill. So we weren't fully alone. So we progressed um, on a free exploratory and critical or non-critical trajectory. Today, I think, performers are far more conscious of and informed um, and can find themselves constrained by what has already taken place. But that's a kind of another discussion. Warren and Ron taught us that anyone could be a musician, but Punk was now telling us that this too. Around Clifton Hill, just do it became the mantra. The, the older generation, you know, those 30-year-olds at uh, Clifton Hill, for the most part, were, were structuralists, I proclaim. <laughs> who were worried by this act of pulling apart structures. Among them, I'd include Warren, I'd dob them in, Ron Nagorka, John Dunkley Smith, uh, Chris Mann. They were the modernist anarchists, and I think we, uh, the then younger generation, were the proto-postmodernists. Modernist structural works were often created by utilizing internal compositional structures and processes that would then play out compositionally over time. This was a, a modernist general, big generalization about modernism there in sort of music and time-based works, playing out structures, internal structures this, that supported it, like an architecture. The surfaces of the music were outcomes that reflected these structural patterns. Structuralism was a major modernist trait in music that extended from high art techniques of the 20th century, including 12-tone music and serialism, through to minimalism. We saw um, an example of structuralism in Ron Nagorka's piece, Atom Bomb, where you had, a, a, you know, on paper, you had a text that you carried out the activities and that beautiful, evocative music was created. We, on the other hand, us, us guys back then, uh, began to treat these inner structures um, as a kind of text that could be reiterated and repositioned to expose its forces and effects that uh, are usually buried within uh, these stylistic surfaces. This tendency to pick apart structures was, was spearheaded by Tisk 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 of the Three Arrows, it's a group uh, also called um, Philip Brophy kind of um, um, came up with um, the three arrows. Of course, it's half a swastika as well. Um, and the problem of how to pronounce the three arrows thing was, you know, hilarious. So, you know, it, and being as lazy as possible about pronouncing it used to really annoy him too, actually. It was kind of interesting since, you know, how do you pronounce those three arrows? Anyway, 
he kind of, um, kind of spearheaded this deconstruction, I suppose, at Clifton Hill, along with um, uh, Maria Kozik, Ralph Traviato, and Jane Stevenson, and also the, the connotations and, um, with Adrian Martin and by Andrew Preston. And then by Essendon Airport, at first intuitively and then more knowingly as we got into the writings of, you know, uh, people like Marx and Roland Barthes, that kind of thing. These two approaches, the late modernism of one generation and the deconstruction of works by us young Turks rubbed up against each other at Clifton Hill, causing quite a bit of argument, but also the creation of interesting artworks and performances that played out some of these battles. And many of these works still need to be kind of unpacked, um, from my point of view anyway. Um, something that happened would perhaps be a consequence of this, for example, was Ron and... Uh, so I'm picking on Ron, there's plenty of other names. <laughs> um, a particular fantastic outcome of the, um, of, from Ron and Warren and Rosbant and um, Ernie Althoff and uh, various uh, people, Rosbant, was to, to work communally in, in a performance where, you know, there wouldn't be a stage. You would sit on the floor, cross-legged, um, maybe like that. There's Ernie and uh, Graham Davis and Ron Gorka, and it's me in the background with my hand up. Um, and they would sort of, you know, go against the sort of um, focus of the stage where the audience and performers were um, separated from each other. And we, like I am performing to you right now, they wanted everything to be uh, a lot more informal, which we're very used to now and is a fantastic way of, uh, of creating uh, dialogue and music and um, interacting with each other. But for... Interestingly, the us generation, the young ones, reinstated the stage in a lot of our performances. And so in, in some shots, there's, uh, I didn't bring it along, but you know, there's actually uh, uh, quite literally um, these kind of pillars on one stage and um, you know, this sort of fascistic kind of stages constructed by artistic disc. And um, we were meant to, you know, we had to sit and listen and, and it was very loud music and basically, it horrified the, the, um, um, some people because, you know, what have we been teaching? Like, you know, what are we trying to communicate to the younger people? They're, they're, they're back on stage being fascist assholes, you know, kind of. Um, but in a way, what they were doing was showing, it, it, the idea was to show this as a process. You know, it all had inverted commas around it. It was all very... Um, uh, gestures, if there were any, were very contrived and it was very self-conscious and self-aware that, that, that that's the way they're performing. But this wasn't really understood at the time. So um, just to finish up, uh, I'll just play a bit um, um, with uh, some music by Tistis Tisk. Um, so instead of an internal text that we saw in some of the structuralist works, or just one that I've presented there, um, of uh, Ron's. We have here uh, an example of a work with the, where the text is externalized um, that suggested how the music might be, uh, some instructions to the audience rather than to the performer about how the music might be consumed. Um, although in many cases the external text was superfluous to the actual sonic transaction. Um, and perhaps only reiterated what we got from the music and the the incredible, you know, the performance attitude. So, 
Whereas Ron's structures text was directed at the performer and in order to create the works, the Tistus Tisk texts and, uh, was created, directed at the audience so that they could deconstruct the work. Um, I'll just play a bit of... It can be half an hour or so. There's another train. reverb there. Um, yeah, so these kind of works, um, there actually should be a saxophone in that, and I think for some reason it's been phase cancelled out of the sound system there, because there should be a really loud saxophone, so that's kind of interesting for us, special performance. Yeah, so these pieces were usually um, done with incredibly, like, a disdain for the fact that the musicians were actually there performing. And if you've seen Philip pull a face like that, you'll understand what I mean. Um, and often played um, supporting uh, strange other groups. I mean, Essendon Airport did this too. Like, I know we used to do things with, I don't know, Midnight Oil and Jimmy and the Boys and things like that at, at, um, at Crystal Ballroom, where we would, we would play kind of very long, irritating pieces. And uh, Philip and Tistisisk uh, would do that as well. And... Um, so it really started to test the boundaries. Uh, but interestingly then, getting back to the fact that his text is, or I shouldn't really talk their text, because Ralph Traviato and Jane Stevenson and Maria Kozik and others were also very important in that group. But the text, for example, part of it, that text for this work, which is, which is part of a suite of works called Music, Rock and Minimalism from 1979, 1980. It came out on um, EPs. Philip or Ralph, or collectively they say, nice noise seeks to drain rock music, both its historical legacies and its many newly clothed emperors, and presents the blunt yet powerful sound of rock in and of itself. He's such an essentialist, isn't he? Stripped of heated myth and shorn of expressive meaning. So these were the outside texts, you know, just to make sure we understood um, uh, how to consume that or 
helped us out if we, you know, kind of, um, yeah, wanted that kind of insight. Um, I should probably stop there. There's obviously much more I could, I could say, but um, I hope you found some of that interesting, and I think we can... Um, uh, uh, I'd be interested uh, to see, hear what uh, Kelly has to say and um, take some questions at some stage. So thank you very much. I don't want to close this fully because I don't have any images and it's nice to have something. No, 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 I think let's leave it there. Um, firstly, I'd just like to also start by acknowledging the Bunrang and the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation, um, and as well as the Wajak Noongar people who were the traditional custodians of the land I now have the pleasure and privilege of residing upon in Perth. I acknowledge that these cultures these two very diverse groups of people are inextricably connected through acts of colonization and respect the continuing resistance and contribution they make to the life of these two cities and regions. So thanks, David, for your um, generous insights into the Clifton Hill Community Music Centre, the mouthful that that is. Um, I'd like to thank Max, Adrienne, and um, everyone for ACCA for inviting me um, to respond tonight. I'll just say a few kind of short things and then we can kind of get into the, um, a conversation with everyone. Um, it's, it's a piece of Australian art history that has profoundly affected my own creative and professional practice. Um, from early in my art history undergrad, I was drawn to the experimental publishing, performance, music, and interdisciplinary practices of the artists, writers, and musicians who were involved in the Clifton Hill and have since then often literally incorporated or conceptually riffed off works from these periods. The spirit of Melbourne New Wave punk, artist-run initiatives and DIY activity is in no small part led to my own kind of weirdly incongruous and diverse output as a writer and curator. Although the history of the Clifton Hill Community Music Centre is in many ways a peculiarly local history of a relatively small group of musicians and artists who often performed as we saw to, I guess, like relatively small audiences, the work that was created there and the practices nurtured within its walls have lent themselves to much Australian art history, art historical conversation, particularly um, as it kind of illustrates a broader, broader trends in Australian and international music and art, in particular a transitional moment, as David has discussed, in artistic production and thought from modernism to postmodernism. So even though it was a space that kind of produced a... Um, and it, not insubstantial amount of work, but a kind of small contribution in many ways. It, it has had an outmoded um, place in art history, I think, um, in Australia, as a kind of a, a landmark site for the formation and theorization of postmodern Australian art theory. So people like Paul Taylor that David has mentioned extensively, but also those Rex Butler, Charles Green, um, people who have kind of written about this period, this like moment kind of um, representing a real shift from modernism to postmodernism. And that's the tension that you see in a lot of the texts that write about this period, um, and maybe some we can kind of get into a little bit more, because I'm always quite sceptical of um, 
the texts that have been written about Clifton Hill Community Music Centre, particularly from um, the arts kind of scene, people who have historicised the period, like Sandra Bridie, um, who wrote about Clifton Hill in the um, Ewing George pattern um, history, um, and others who have written about that history from the perspective of the arts kind of world have kind of often neglected the very important um, vanishing mediator that was experimental music and that kind of like older generation. Um, and so that's like a kind of interesting thing that we can get into. Um, there are so many points that you can make about the Clifton Hill Community Music Centre, many of which David has kind of brought up, but there's just a few things that I would like to reiterate. There was an emphasis, of course, on working with musically untrained practitioners, as David said of himself, that created an environment of cross-pollinating, a cross-pollination, um, sorry, created an environment where cross-pollination flourished. Anyone could create a film, put together a sound installation, or form a band. There was an interest in exploring the relationship between audience and practitioner, which David has also kind of discussed, which unveiled the process of making music, removing the mystification of performance, whilst encouraging new kinds of audience participation in artistic practice. Um, and I would like to, before we get into conversation, talk about one work in particular by Ros Bant that I thought kind of sums that up a bit. And um, of course, the removal of money um, signified Clifton Hill as a space that defied categorization and lay outside of the mainstream. Um, yeah, I think uh, the, the two publications that were put together that kind of represent a really important um, documentation, um, the New Music um, newspaper and then the New Music. <laughs> yeah. um, and there was, also an, there was also a publication that came after that called NMA, which I think stands for New Music Association, um, which are very important kind of pieces of documentation from from that time, but I think in the first one, Ron even included as a kind of epigraph um, a Marx quote or something, yeah. Um, so this transitionary moment is very important, um, and it's not merely a creation of insight. I guess for artists and curators and theorists working at the time, there was a self-conscious attempt to overthrow what they deemed kind of modernism, a loose approach to a regularly contested period that came directly before them. We can get into this. <laughs> um, Paul Taylor, in his seminal text, Australian New Wave and the Second Degree of 1981, suggests that, quote, the history of modernist art itself is being interpreted by many New Wave artists as a series of signs and as a style which can be quoted. Adapting a pose at once cynical and naive, many young artists are struggling with modernist conventions, retrieving and synthesizing them while collectively forgetting the conditions which spawned them. In this context, these artists are directing our attentions to the question of modernism's decline." Um, end quote. New music in this instance is a broad reference to the forms of music that pushed the boundaries of what was defined as music itself. And within the Clifton Hill context, experimental music made with the new technologies of synthesizers and computers, as David has got in, into. Um, and similarly, in Melbourne punk, the term um, was used as a catch-all for experimental music. Anything from the ironic romanticism of Nick Cave's The Birth, The Boys Next Door, um, 
to the anti-sentimentalism of um, Brophy's Tisk Tisk Tisk. So this kind of like looseness with these terms um, is kind of interesting to try to think about what they meant in that time. Um, Postmodernism and modernism are kind of contested terms that are just starting to be used in the period and it's quite difficult to kind of get a grasp on what people actually mean exactly. But I, I guess when we talk about postmodernism um, within this context, um, it does owe quite a lot to Rex Butler and in particular his edited anthology, What is Appropriation? Um, Butler describes the rhetoric of appropriation as the endlessly conflicting doubling of art as both original and copy. Picking up on Taylor's second degree in appropriation, Butler suggests that Australia is a place populated entirely by copies whose artists, artistic styles were deemed to always be copies in other styles. In a colonial out, as a colonial outpost, the Australian experience is only ever a simulation of somewhere else and therefore is a paradigm of the postmodern world. So these are, this is um, people like Taylor, who were kind of early theorists of postmodernism in Australia, obviously looking at David's work, the work of Tis Tis Tis, and kind of seeing it really easily illustrate these new ideas, which is one of the reasons why it was kind of that younger generation was taken up so um, wholeheartedly, I guess, by the visual arts in the early 80s. Um, this new discourse is found within a broader debate that sought to refine um, national identity in Australia. So like, to give even more of a kind of context, um, playwrights such as David Williamson, art historians like Robert Hughes, poets like Les Murray were undertaking through their work a project of defining a new kind of Australian mythos. Williamson, in particular, a new, play, a new wave playwright, resisted the European and British-Australian cultural cringe attitudes that believed Australia was a vulgar place by dramatising Australian larrikin life and people. The Australian film industry was producing works like Wake in Fright, Mad Max, and Sunday Too Far Away, sought to place Australia's subjects at their centre, but were also a rigorous critique of the Australian popular culture, such as its masculinity and mistreatment of Aboriginal peoples. What is meant to be Australian and how to define the Australian experience was contested and this theorising of Australia as a copy where culture is endlessly produced through appropriation become the postmodern visual arts world's attempt to answering those questions. Blah, 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 generational change, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, So I just want to go back a little bit to audience participation before we get into the conversation. One significant exhibition slash event, I guess, um, more like, that's a better way to describe it, worth noting, took place on the 13th of November 1977. And it's quite an early example of installation art in Australia. And 1977 is an important date to kind of note because this idea of generational shift and change are like loosely kind of always seem to um, overtake the a, a conversation of the Clifton Hill Community Music Centre, but it kind of neglects... Um, there are lots of examples where both of these generations are kind of uh, working together, collaborating. It's not as easy as a clear um, break. Um, but anyway, this exhibition on the 13th of November 1977 called Coat Hanger Exhibition by Ros Bant and Martin Harris the project included two installations and sculptural environments titled Music for Winds and TV Circuits and Surfaces and Cavities. 
With coat hangers as the main visual focus in each room, the audience was invited to explore and interact slash touch the sound sculptures within each space. As audiences would move through spaces, sounds were triggered. Color wheels that had been positioned in front of the two television sets as coat hangers, as coat hangers were touched or struck in the space by the audience, different colors would appear on the screens. These live experimental video sound installations involved audience participation and the real-time manipulation of electronics to produce visual outcomes were, diffi were difficult to categorize by the contemporary audience who had never seen electronic art used in this way. That's an assumption, sorry, but yeah. Um, the program of experimental interdisciplinary sound video performances was arguably at the cutting edge of Melbourne concert concert scene at the time, and could so obviously lend itself to a kind of discussion of what installation means within an exhibition space or a gallery space. Um, small groups of people would create a series of simple tones through the mere movement of their bodies through the space that would then feed back into the room through small speakers. Audience members could sit on the ground or on chairs in the middle of the room, this kind of breaking down between audience um, and kind of practitioner that David's saying later um, became a kind of point of contention. Um, audience members could sit on the ground, sorry. Um, everyone would organically take turns in activating the work. This performance that positions the audience as a crucial collaborative participant with the artist in the composition of the work displays a fascination and investment in spatial sonic phenomena. Rather than an interest particularly in the sounds created, the emphasis is fully given to the autonomy and the experience of the audience. And whether a work was successful or not depended on how, upon how enabled the audience was, um, rather than the kind of outcome. Um, I just wanted to, yeah, yeah, I just wanted to use one kind of very specific example. Um, but I like this idea of thinking about a feedback, both in terms of oral and audio, but in terms of a kind of constant um, written and textual feedback too. It's kind of feedback loops that kind of a generative audience, practitioner, um, the documentation, the kind of thesis that was often set up through text by, um, by the practitioners, this kind of textual response. This is kind of constant like feedback loop going on. Anyway. I think, um, yeah, thanks uh, Kelly. Yeah, a couple of things there I'd just like to uh, comment, comment on. Um, I reckon, uh, the thing about writing, right, and text and all that is it cleans things up. It kind of makes everything like, you know, awesomizes things in our minds because all of a sudden the work exists in our imaginations. I mean, Ros's work, I saw it as I was there, um, you know, it was kind of like uh, very messy, you know. Um, I mean, I, Ros does great work. It, it's, it's, you know, it's fantastic. But it, um, it wasn't bad messy, it was interesting messy. Um, and the encounter was, you know, weren't, couldn't be specified along the lines that, you know, one does respectively when talking about it. Um, yeah, what do you think about that sort of comment? Are you saying I'm cleaning it up through... I am. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, this, uh, the question of documentation is really interesting because... In many ways, 
uh, like David said, that it was, there was very little visual documentation, like, as in like kind of um, photographs of exhibitions and things, but there was an immense amount of written documentation of all of the performances. And so I guess there is this kind of interesting second-hand um, removal that happens through the text. But these things, I think, lend itself... like. Um, well, you know, yeah. I, I, I didn't mean to sort of put you on the no, uh, no, no. spot because, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, it's something I work with and use. You mm -hmm. know, I, I can, I'm saying new stuff about Clifton Hill. Um, Clifton Hill, I'm talking about postmodernism, metmodernism. I'd never heard of the word postmodernism until the 1990s. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing, you know. Um, I had not a clue. So what I'm telling you now is what, you know, I've kind of found out about and I've come back, you know, I've, I found out what, those terms mean and uh, what was going on. There, there was a genuine interest in, in um, you know, Marxism and uh, and, and, and Roland Barthes, um, and, uh, but he's like popular, you know, the, the popular read on deconstruction. But a lot of what was happening was very intuitive, I suppose. I mean, this, and, um, which meant stuff was happening, it was going on, but, um, you know, we, this idea of, gen you know, that I talk about generational, it's, it's a bit damning using that term because it's such an easy thing to keep coming back to. But if, unfortunately, there aren't any people here, they're all overseas or various places from that period, but some of them would be horrified that I'm, I'm saying that, you know. They're going, you know, but we all, you know, got on so well and we, you know, and they, they've forgotten those fights because, you know, one has fights, right? We used to kind of fought in bands with other, you know, and you all end up liking each other. 20 years later, um, for those of you who still look to grow that, you know, grow up, you'll find out, you'll, you'll, you know, I mean, I used to fight with Ollie Olsen and stuff and we used to, a lot of bands used to play and perform because they didn't like what the others were doing and, and then they sort of become very um, forgiving and, and um, so I guess it's, it's been, just to get to a point, sorry, um, what's interesting <laughs> is um, how I've been able to go back and um, and, and apply these, um, you know, th this sort of thinking process, and I guess it is a cleaning up that I'm doing as well of you know what I think was taking place then. Yeah, I don't want to keep on talking about this like shift, right? But I um, the historical representations, which include I guess the big art histor art historical texts about it, is Sandra Bridey, Chris McAuliffe writing, who, who has been interested in kind of punk and art's relationship to each other. Um, both of those writers talk very specifically about the generational shift from the older generation who had a musical background, who were like taught within um, um, the musical yeah, institutions. The academy. The academy, academy. Yeah. And the, the younger generation that included you, Philip, Adrian, um, that were untrained as musicians. Um, and then the other, I mean, just for everyone else who's interested, the other kind of very interesting history about the Clifton Hill um, is written by Robin Fox. But that only goes up until a certain, I think it only goes up until the early 1980s. And so he's very specifically made this like distinction between a musical art history as well. So there is this kind of, in its representation, people have like really wanted to make this clean break. It has felt like a natural kind of way of framing what happened there. And I totally don't think, I think that's a misrepresentation of um, the important foundations of those, that older generation of, of musicians 
and how, the things that they kind of set up and put in motion in that space. Um, yeah. I mean, it was amazing seeing modernism break down at that point before you, where, you, you know, I was, I was basically at the Trobe Uni in classes there and you've been taught stuff and you're sort of going like, what, we've got to come up with what new structures and our own idea to, you know, set theory and apply it in a particular way and um, it, it, it just became this tiresome treadmill of, of invention and the whole sort of, you know, um, it, it really, you could just sense it, that there was a kind of an, an exhaustion, just like there was an exhaustion in, in, in popular music, which, you know, punk sort of just, you know, reset uh, briefly for a very short period. Um, and so that was happening, yeah, you, you could just, it, 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 you, could, you could smell it in the air, yeah, in, in Melbourne, I reckon, yeah. Um, yeah, is there any questions from the audience, maybe? Think about, think about some questions. I, I do want to talk about what made the Clifton Hill, because you did say that there was this kind of feeling, maybe from other um, kind of music tribes, at the time, yeah, that there was a kind of an animosity towards the um, yeah, there was the seriousness of what was happening at Clifton Hill, and I think that actually has a lot to do with the text and the writing. This um, documentation, yes, I think, yeah. that the, the self-awareness of the performance, because mm. you know, everyone, well, certain people were very self-conscious and self-aware, introverted sort of types, and they found that they did a music that did that. And then you'd go to parties and, you know, you'd have friends who are into, uh, whether it was, you know, I guess we all pick on Nick Cave, but um, uh, various sort of people who are like, you know, sure, I've got drugs and alcohol and I, mean, I piss and I'm slopping around and my voice is like fucked up as a consequence and you can have the essence of that fucked upness by listening to me, you know. All that sort of absolute um, expression and gesture, uh, you know, was the sort of thing that, a lot of people kind of got into, and I kind of did, I enjoyed it that more now. It was, you know, I think kind of interesting. But people were kind of really offended when you kind of, yeah, you passively did something or, or repeated, you know. You're in a rock situation and you did something that was like a bit unrock. And like we, when Essendon Airport first performed, we both sat down. I played a, it was a reel-to-reel. A, a -reel. I played a keyboard and Robert, the guitarist, was sitting down playing a, a jazz guitar. And, uh, you know, there's a wall of people and a massive sound system and, and there were beer cans kind of coming our way because it was kind of, uh, yeah, a bit of a, um, yeah, we were being antagonistic and, you know, you know passive-aggressive, basically. Yeah. So. I love reading about uh, the Tis 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 What Is disco performance where the, each chorus is kind of outlets, like, we're going into the chorus now and we're going into the verse. It's so, like everything kind of announced in this very like formal and ironic sense. Um, That's, yeah. Very anti-heroic. Yeah, no, they're, they're absolutely. So you were kind of just really highlighting the, the artifice um, that, that everyone was kind of consuming at that point because the music industry was, you know, was quite huge. And, um, you know... To be to be expressive within that industry, you had to be, you know, anointed as a great composer. I mean, I remember at La Trobe even overhearing one of the teachers actually telling someone else that they're really sure they've got this program going, but what we're really after is to find the, the one genius that's going to come through. And uh, I remember hearing her say that, the teacher, to someone else, and I thought, oh, right, you know, I, I, 
<laughs> we, you know, that kind of just made me even more kind of want to sort of push, push through that sort mm. of, um, uh, sort of, yeah, that kind of world and those sort of expectations. Yeah. So you had the kind of academy, but then there was also pub rock. And yeah. stuck kind of maybe in the middle there? Yeah, well, there's very little middle. I think Clifton Hill was really good because um, it actually took a lot of what was happening in... Because universities had concerts and performances, but a lot of those were sort of being brought out into, the, into a public arena. So it was no longer, mm. you know, stuff that you had to go to a university concert to see. So it, was, it broke down the, the, the stranglehold that they had on sort of... Um, sort of um, art making, and um, it was the the one. I mean, you know, now there's so many subsets and subcultures, of course, of, and scenes, and, and mm. everyone respects the other scenes, and you know. Uh, but back then, there were there were very few, and if most of them were existed, you know, the Clifton Hill, and there was a Fitzroy Beat and a St Kilda kind of the scene. Bands. What were the bands? The little bands. The little, oh, the little bands. Yes, that was um, another kind of anarchistic kind of um, um, uh, music scene. And they all kind of, uh, they set up. But it, other than that, there was Countdown mm. and, you know, 3XY. And I actually saw Red Simons on the street today and thought of Whoa. you. Whoa. Well, pa other parts of the music world that had mass animosity. Well, at one point, Eon FM on. happened. Eon FM, speaking of... Oh, Red Simon's not... Yeah, I yeah. think of Simon, the DJ Simon. Anyone? And Lee Simon, thank you. Sorry, Glenn, you're sort of showing your... <laughs> Max has a question. Um, but ironically, when uh, um, they set up this new FM channel, they got approached Philip and got him to do the logo. You're on FM. And so they wanted some of, some of what, you know, Philip was doing, because he did a lot of the posters for... Uh, crystal ballroom as well, but uh, you know this stuff was starting to be extracted and pulled out from the from this uh, um, uh, this kind of smaller milieu that was sort of happening. David, you've spoken a bit about um, a lot about the kind of dialogue between or dispute or antipathy between more deconstructionist and expressive tendencies in music and. Certainly in the art world, that would have been the same with, with the return to painting versus more deconstructionist practices. And John Nixon's um, art projects, which was yeah. operating at the same time, like 1979, 1983, yeah. would have been concurrent with Clifton Hill Music Centre. Yeah. So what was the dialogue to, with art world context? Was there much dialogue between Clifton Hill Music Centre and art world context? I mean, certainly Paul Taylor you know, was a conduit, and among yeah. others, but... Were you there in dialogue with those people? Very little, except John Nixon and Peter Tyndall and Art Projects was the exception. They were the one uh, group that we, you know, we used to go to Art Projects and see John, and John used to send his pneumatic drill publications to us, and John actually performed. Um, if anyone knows John's work, um, he's a very sort of conceptual um, uh, musician, and uh, he did a work... Um, he performed once at Clifton Hill... And it really upset, um, again, Chris Mann got really upset, and that was kind of one of the shirt fronts that sort of um, happened because John put a, got, got a cassette and put it in a cassette player and played it, and it was just kind of this sort of crazy kind of mixed-up thing. But I think Clifton Hill, because that was just such a minimalist gesture and there was so little art... Um, 
so little available sort of um, uh, work, you know, you, you couldn't see the work or the effort or, you know, I think someone like, uh, well, Chris in particular was quite affronted by that and was like challenging him that, and, and sort of um, to explain himself. So, the, you know, because a lot of artists who did come there adopted a, a kind of a musical sensibility. If they brought their art sensibility there, which John did, it kind of freaked people out because he was t talking about, you know, an idea that was, you know, sure, it existed over time, but it was more like a gesture that was sort of over like that. Um, so that, you know, that um, always that problem of art, art and music having quite different um, sort of, you know, experiential paradigms um, uh, played out. But, yeah, it, there were people who came, there, there were artists, um, you know, Linda Maranon um, uh, came, and, uh, you yeah, know, I, I could... Juan de Vila and you know, various people um, uh, were, were right into it. Um, but um, you know, institutions other than um, Clifton Hill, um, other than um, the Trobe University, like art departments, they stayed away. I mean, because they were all into Nick Cave, weren't they? I mean, you know, he took drugs and got pissed, so. Joel? Yeah, it was, North and South River, yeah. But you weren't straight edge, were you, David? <laughs> we were kind of... <laughs> we used to get... We, you know, we were notorious for being basically, um, you know, 20-year-old virgins who had... Uh, <laughs> there's no... When someone actually brought a can of beer in, it, was, it actually was kind of like, oh, they've got beer. <laughs> it was kind of that explains a lot. <laughs> Um, thanks for your talk, and, and it was great, and thanks, Kelly. Um, I, I had a couple of questions. Um, one is, is about the role of, um, like, humour and satire, which you've sort of mentioned a little bit. I'm just wondering whether, you know, one of the main um, sites of difference between the modernist avant-garde and the postmodernist was just a sort of different sense of humour, a different sensibility, like what the sacred cows were and how to kind of mock them. Um, and then I also wanted to ask you about the kind of aftermath of Clifton Hill. Um, and I'm thinking about your work in the 80s and 90s, your ensemble work, which, um, you know, is often compared to, like, Steve Reich and Philip Glass and, and other um, modernist composers. And I'm just wondering, you know, did the irony and quotation and connotation, did that play itself out? Did it kind of wear off and did you eventually find yourself um, taking yourself seriously in ways that you sort of couldn't have earlier on? Thanks, Jill. <laughs> Do you want to... All right. Um, yeah, so uh, humour. Um, humour, yeah. Well, I think, um, of course, there's ironic humour. It was kind of interesting and I guess um, the younger us younger folks, there were, I mean, I did an album called 50 Synthesizer Greats, which was an absolute piss take and was actually, you know, a send-up of Tangerine Dream and, um, you know, a whole lot of um, kind of, you know, stupid kind of stylistic kind of things. And so, I, I you know, it was kind of uh, quite badly uh, recorded, blah, blah, blah. Um, but 
Um, and also had this amazing portrait of David on the front, kind of smiling. Yeah, like, like a... Philip Brophy, because uh, we worked very closely together back then, he said go into Meyer and get a Meyer t-shirt done with your cheesiest smile and get it printed out on a piece of paper because you were, that was the latest thing. You could get a, a t-shirt in typeface and it would be like your image. So I brought that and he, he used that. But, you know, that... that so. What I learned was that uh, irony has a short shelf life and, um, you know, you're good for a couple of years and uh, after that it becomes first degree again and people see what you do, you know, they don't see it as ironic because you just blend into, you know, other things that are happening and that irony has to happen from a particular position and perspective and um, um, so... Um, I think some of the humour of those uh, of some of our works um, has kind of gone. I mean, the, the Palimpsest album cover had quotation marks over, you know, this album was recorded by, and was <laughs> kind of this stupid kind of circular, you know, quoting, requoting thing ha happening. And I think people, you know, actually some people read that as a, you know, genuine attempt to be, into, you know, of intellectual kind of. Uh, serious uh, intention. Now, but it was slippery though because so many people were serious when they might have seemed to be not serious or ironic. Or, and I think you know John's a really good example of that. Um, was definitely serious about this like very minimalist work. John was, Nixon. Yes, John Nixon. Sorry. Um, and maybe some people assumed that he was taking the piss, but he definitely wasn't. So the kind of slipperiness between whether something is truly ironic or not. Yeah, and it's a brilliant place to be. And John operates amazingly in that zone, in, in his non... In, even in some of his paintings as well, yeah. yeah. But I was, I was also about to say that, um, you know, some of the... the a lot of the works, um, there, there was reference to, like, you know, precursors, just briefly, to Clifton Hill, but there was a, um, a new music um, something uh, in Flemington, I forget the title of it now, that happened, and people would, um, back in the early 70s, a lot of performance and new music stuff didn't, it, you know, I mean, new music, we just, just park that term, because that can, needs to be discussed and unpacked, like what that term actually means. But there were a lot of performances, and I, there's images I didn't show of that new music newspaper, the first one, with people dressed up in duck costumes and, uh, you know, top hats and tails. And, you know, there was a whole kind of, like, 70s uh, sort of hippie pantomime um, approach. Uh, what would be the term for that? You know, that sort of... Um, so everything was, like, you know, it was just daft, you know. So it was just, like, a silliness that sort of um, imbued. Um, uh, so humour was used, you know, I think that, that sort of was still there to some degree with um, uh, performances by Ernie and where they dress up in a particular way and it was sort of like, oh, give me a break, you know. But f for them it was still kind of really working. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, um, I mean, the thing is, writing the pieces and working and, you know, back then, it, it was a pretty hilarious time and we had lots of fun, um, you know. Um, so... It, it, um, there was kind of always a humour there in that case. But if that sort of gets to some... Now, the other one, yeah, I don't know. So I, I did form, have this ensemble um, because... Um, but I won't 
say too much about it, but it sort of snowballed and I had all these great musicians who would play my kind of stuff. Um, I didn't want to have guitars or drums and um, yeah, there was eight pieces, it actually grew to an 11-piece group. And um, yeah, I, there, were, there was a lot of early sort of ironies and loop, loopings and, you know, music that was kind of like deliberately banal. <laughs> and, you know, I think some of that worked and some of it kind of didn't. And it was certainly, you're dealing with a kind of a much varied, un, uh, um, unknowing audience with a kind of classical, contemporary, classical, you know, music audience. And so I think it lost a bit of a, you know, you, you were kind of, some people got it, but most people didn't. And, that, and it could well be that I, you know, you know, I, 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 I think some of those works are pretty problematic, really. You know, I think I should just sit down and rewrite them, to be honest, Joel. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up. David, we have fi one final question just here. Hi, David. Hi, Kelly. Um, 50th synthesizer grade's got reissued. How do you feel about that now? The reissue? Yeah, I mean, it being like a work that was ironically critiquing a dominant canon of electronic music, and now it is effectively a dominant canon. Um, I suppose regarding that, I was wondering if, if you felt like there was a need to recreate something like a Clifton Hill Community Music Center, or if like the time travelers convention had only needed to happen once in the past. You're saying, could there be another one, are you saying? So yeah, or like, is it, is it, does it perform a role of like a historical moment that Australia didn't have, and maybe just one that we can forever reference? in its absence. I think it's been replicated in Sorry. different ways, in different iterations, and there is like a constant kind of interest, I think, in the arts community in particular, and still kind of um, being a broad church and including experimental theater and music. And the, um, it kind of replicates in different ways to the particular idiosyncrasies of the time. Um, so, uh, Yes and no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think. I mean, I guess like in original terms, would it have existed if it had existed previously? To yeah, begin with? I think there's lots of cultural and political kind of um, important things to note of that time that made that space possible. I mean, the Whitlam and Labor governments Definitely. that had been in power for many years that kind of created, um, that enabled a lot of spaces like the organ factory to be available rent-free for artists, um, right. particular artists that were kind of subsisting on um, uh, benefits from the government. Um, a lot of artists kind of, that's how people made their work and practiced. And so it is both a, 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 of its time, yeah, but also um, I think gets replicated, yeah. And I think also, um, yeah, to pick up on some of those points, there is also like you had a monolithic uh, sort of media and press, mm -hmm. and um, if you did something, it was picked up eventually by everybody. Like you get a review in the Age, and you, then Triple R would show it, and the ABC would sniff around and get interested. And so I was, I mean, I, I'm kind of there by virtue of a lot of luck. You know, I happened to do a course. I happened to, you know, dis, you know, you know uh, so I, it's a, and um, so I think that opportunity, you know, for that, you know, for a, a kind of a, you know, an okayish sort of 
quirky, interesting work to get, you know, to have a certain kind of status that it does. Is it kind of a fluky sort of coming together of, the, of those uh, circumstances? Because you know, I hear stacks of you know awesome work now, but it, but that, that a lot of people are making, a lot of individuals are making, and of course it's very they don't have that mega media to sort of bring it out and you know champion it, and, and there's no sort of you know, the, the industry behind that's all, um, also disappeared. So, um, and the center, again, that was kind of like this little satellite in between like academia on one side and, you know, mass crass culture on the other that was kind of a little beacon. But now there are lots of beacons or lots of centers and, you know, the, the, the weight of those kind of um, divisions have shifted and there's a whole other dynamic in play. So. There might, there will be something else, but I don't think it'll look or feel or smell anything like, uh, you know, Clifton Hill. It's like a kind of quaint, unpolished DIY-ness to it, or? <laughs> yeah, perhaps so. I don't mean that in a condescending way. I mean that in the most... Uh, yeah, no, it's very DIY. Just yeah. do it. Do it yourself. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, thanks so much for coming. Thanks, David. And thanks for thanks coming Aka. too. Thanks, Max. Thanks. Yes, thanks everybody, and thanks everyone for t uh, for coming along. And uh, yeah, thanks everybody. Please thank our speakers for tonight. <laughs>